I think every every person is really like that, Ryan, where they're very self-interested, specifically in their own family, and they want to leave a legacy for their children, whatever that might be. I would just point to the fact that very few people in in American history have actually had the ability to do that, and many have been legally prohibited from going to college and buying a home, which are two of the biggest factors in creating wealth in America today. And so so if if that's not an equitable thing, if everybody really can't do that, then you find what we have today, which is a massive inequality of wealth distribution in this country along the lines of race. Because African Americans for so long were barred from going to colleges, were redlined um, from from owning homes, and were not allowed to pass on the wealth that our parents and grandparents were able to pass on to us as the three of us being white men. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I your point uh, is super valid, and I I think that's the way people think. Like they want a better life for their kids, and it's uh, and it's there's a, nothing wrong with thinking. No, that. no, not at Everybody all. Everybody wants that. Yeah. It's an interesting discussion, and I think that's why the conversation, though, centers around wealth, just centers around, like, corporate tax, centers around wealth distribution, and and income inequality gaps, you know, while people are alive, is because, uh, you know, part of the question is, you know, you hear the arguments like, what are we going to tax success in this country, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and I think that the conversation around income inequality, you know, today for workers today is partially related to the fact that there's a, there's a a large feeling and not just a feeling in this country, but a fact that, you know, there are people who make millions and millions of dollars or, or even like, let's shrink it. We'll make a million or $2 million, you know, uh, based on, you know, the hard work of, you know, individual workers, uh, and it's, it's not necessarily that someone gins up a few million dollars, you know, personally with their, you know, 15 hour days or whatever the case, there's a lot of people working 15 hour days uh, and some people have the education and the wherewithal and the resources to turn that into a lot of money. And other people are part of the group who creates that amount of money. Um, it's an interesting conversation for sure. Well, I think to bring it back to the topic, like whether or not any of the current world religions stay dominant, what does religion have to say about this? And how does that help us shape a response to, to what's going on in our world right now? Because most of the world religions would say that the kind of hoarding and income inequality that we have is a huge problem, that we're losing compassion, we're losing kindness, that we don't care for each other. Um, do those values mean anything? in this world and in this discussion? I think there's ultimately there, you're hinting at a a sort of weakness inherent in a lot of those traditional religions, which is that they are constantly being reinterpreted in the space and time in which people live. And that there is no constant... Christian worldview or Hindu worldview that we can trace back 2,000 years or 4,500 years, that that is constantly evolving. And that's what Harari says in the 20th century. Yeah, people in America were mostly Christian, 
But their religion was capitalism. Right. That was their religion that they were trying to spread through the world, especially then during the Cold War era. When America, when, when we thought we won, it wasn't because Christianity won. It was because capitalism conquered over communism, right? So Christianity then gets reinterpreted to serve capitalism. Thus, you have prosperity gospel. Bootstrapping. You, absolutely. You have uh, Christianity completely goes from the Christianity, I would say, maybe of Jimmy Carter of the mid-20th century to the Christianity of Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and and the Christian right. And so that that's a that's something that we have to look at with all religions. The same thing in, in Hinduism in India. There's resurgent Hindu nationalism in India today as well. Uh, massive right-wing Hindu nationalist movement. Hinduism is being reinterpreted for the 20th 21st century political economic landscape in India. What about the reinterpretation that's happening on the other side, though? Um, Because there's a huge movement of progressive liberal Christians that are saying, hold on, like if we're looking at the life of Jesus, this is who he was. This is how he lived. He stood up for the broken. He, He fed the oppressed. He tried to set them free. He stood up for those that were in oppressed classes. Like, And so that's the work that we need to be doing. And I think you can find that in other world traditions too, where there are people saying that as well. I mean, they're not getting the publicity of the nationalists, but they are saying it. There's no doubt that people are saying that um, and that Jesus said those things, but they do the same thing that Christians on the right do, which is emphasize certain parts of Scripture and de-emphasize others to fit into their now, not right-wing capitalist, but to more of a socialist sort of a communal sort of collective worldview that they have. So, yeah, you can you can. I mean, the Bible is a big book. You can oh, totally. cherry pick anything yeah. out of there and get it to support your particular view. I don't think there is an objective. Here's what Christianity is, and here's what Christian says, or or, or here's what Christ said, or here's what Muhammad said, and here's what Islam really means. It's constantly being reinterpreted, and there's massive debates in all those religions. And they all claim to say, this is what Christianity says. This how, is does, what- how does literalism fit into that then? Like, because a lot of the people that are making these claims that are doing that reinterpretation would say that they follow the literal word, that the King James version that came from the sky written through a man's hand is what I'm following and this is what it is. And yet it's being morphed by these nationalistic political views like What's does he say anything about that about the way that they talk about their text or their tradition and the reality that they're forming? Uh, when you mention that, I'm reminded of uh, of a pastor that I really like, Rob Bell, um, who's kind of fallen away, I guess, from the traditional church in many ways. But he always says they're not following what the Bible literally says; they're following a particular interpretation that came about in a certain space and time of what the Bible actually says. Now, you're not going to get anybody to admit that. No one's ever going to... Anyone who says they literally interpret the Bible, well, if you're a Protestant, you don't literally interpret the part where he said, this is my body, like Catholics do. (laughs) They they, they literally think that a a miracle happens in Mass and you're eating the body of Jesus. Protestants don't do that. They they look at that and go, oh, that was figurative. That, That part wasn't literal. 
And so there is no such thing in reality of a literal interpretation of the Bible, because over time, whoever thought they were interpreted literally, that has always changed. I think what's interesting about that is at at this very same time that they're making that claim, because I, th- I wonder if they're trying to compete with science, which is la- the language of fact, which many of them deny. And so, like, is literalism, reading the Bible literally, my fact to try to, like, make my religion hold? I... Well, I wouldn't say science is the, the language of fact. Right now, it's the best way we have of understanding the physical world in which we live. Um, well, but when you hear, especially conservative evangelicals talk about this, that they would say that, that science is trying to make absolutes out of God's created order and you know, clearly the earth is not millions of years old. And so turning the Bible into like this literal book that I can pick from maybe competes better with that. I don't know. It's just, it's weird how, like what's going on here? You know, we're, because we're reinterpreting it for the generation we live, but the method of that reinterpretation is like to bear down on it so that it has no flexibility. Well, and there I think you you hit on something. It's the idea of flexibility, where a lot of times people are very, very uncomfortable with flexibility. They, they want answers. You yeah, know? I mean, the, the world we okay. live in and the life that we live is very confusing. And yep. I mean, as far back as there are written records, people have been dealing with what does it mean to be human and what is it, uh, what is our purpose? And, and so... To have an answer to that and to know the answer to that is very comforting. And I understand why people want to believe that. Doesn't necessarily mean it's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, and even Billy Graham was, was big, was huge on science and saying, as Christians, we need to adapt to what science is telling us. We can't fight science. We're going to be made fools of. Um, and he kind of lost that. He, he kind of lost that battle yeah. as he sort of um, gave way to, to folks like Falwell and Robertson in the, in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, people who just fundamentally denied science. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, because, you know, people are there's a there's a large group of people leaving the institutional church, as we know. Right. Like we have data that tells us that. And and part of that feels like. Um, and there's probably data out there to, that I am not, you know, aware of that tells us that part of the reason people are leaving is, um, science denial and, you know, that people aren't, people aren't leaving, you know, whatever ideology, um, you know, whether it be, you know, their Christian institution, their Jewish, Jewish institution or their, uh, you know, Islamic institution when we're talking about the U S right maybe primarily those three, not necessarily because they, uh, or, the, you know, or even their Hindu institution, like not necessarily because they, um, don't feel a connection to something transcendent or, uh, the possibility of a, of, you know, a, um, uh, transcendent force in the universe, but because they're like, why do I need to, why do I need to tithe or, you know, or why do I need to, um, 
why do I need to have these non-negotiable, inflexible ideologies? And, uh, and is, you know, I'm not going to let my church tell me that if I don't vote in a certain way, I'm not really a part of the community, et cetera, et cetera. And so we see people leaving the formal church, but I don't, this is where I need to read more and be more well, be more well read and well versed, but I, it doesn't feel like people are leaving the idea of, um, of faith or spirituality or um, the possibility of a, of a universal intelligence or a, um, you know, behind or, uh, or a peace or a oneness with the universe behind. Like that's not what people are leaving. Like they're leaving institutions. And so what happens with all that energy and all that consideration Um with people when they leave the institutional church, because that was a place where, you know, I think we've seen in recent history where people felt like they could explore some of that or, and be a part of that community. And, um, and we have people leaving that formal institution, but not, but not, not needing, you know, it's not as if they're saying like, I don't need to consider spirituality or I don't need to consider religion or this faith that I grew up in. So what happens with all that? inquiry and exploration. No, I think I think you're right. And it's the dogma that's the problem. Right. That yeah. turns people off. And science doesn't have any dogma. Yeah. And and that's the thing with science. It's constantly asking questions and it has to be repeatable and you have to continually reanalyze. I mean right now they're they're doing all kinds of amazing things with, with dark matter. Mm-hmm. And we, we don't even know what that is. You know, it makes up the majority of our universe. We don't even know what it is. Right? Can't even necessarily prove it exists. But Science is continually asking questions. There is no dogma. It's yeah, the, constantly the, evolving. The, the end of the questioning line in science is, well, that's all we know now. Right. And then someone picks it up from there and, yep. and, and tries to create an, a reproducible experiment that goes even further. Except that that's not how it's perceived by some people. Sure, fair. Some people totally. definitely perceive you know, teaching evolution in school as dogma. Like, you're exposing our kids to this. Why are you doing this? Why do I have to sit through this? Why do I have to listen to this? Well, those are good questions. And, and those questions yeah. can be explained to them if they would, you know, actually take the time to listen and go through that. Well, here's why. Here's what it means to be a theory in science. And here's the evidence that we found that leads us to this theory. Is it incomplete? Yeah, but based on everything we've found, it's this here. is the best evidence we have, which is what science is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're totally right, though, Janelle, that there's... And, and again, I, the binaries that are set up are the, uh, the false... Uh, what is it? The false dichotomies that right. are set up in, in these communities is what it does ultimately drive a lot of people out at some point. Um, and then there's, of course, like the critical ages between like, let's say, 18 or maybe even younger, you know, and 60, 60, if you're lucky to make it there, right? Lucky enough to make it there, where there's like all this time where you're not necessarily facing your own mortality. And you're also maybe not quite, maybe not quite young enough that like everything you hear from an authority figure is truth, you know? So we have this huge swath of time where people are, you know, um, where there's a lot of open space to, to interpret and yeah, explore and maybe leave the church, maybe not, maybe leave it and come back. 
but yeah, the false sort of uh, oppositional ideas too is seems to drive people away. Well, that's a huge problem in politics too. I mean, where the majority of voters under 35 don't identify as a Republican or a Democrat. Um, or I should say a plurality of them don't. Um, and that's interesting. So how does our system adapt to that? The political parties control the primary system. They write the rules of the debates, which aren't debates at all. They're joint press conferences. It's not a real debate, right? And I came across this really interesting idea by a physicist called Cesar Hidalgo. And he has this great TED Talk you should all check out, where he talks about restructuring Congress. Instead of having 465 representatives, why not everybody have a voice in Congress? You establish your own sort of, um, what do they call it on the uh, online, when you get a, a little a person and you dress them up any way you want. An icon. Uh, avatar. Avatar. Thank you. You get your own little avatar and you plug in. And, and they give you... 50 different policies, and you plug in, I agree, I mostly agree, I somewhat agree, and the artificial intelligence calculates where exactly, kind of how you would vote on every piece of legislation. Because every piece of legislation is thousands of pages. The congressmen don't even read them. They don't even read them. So they have no idea the nuances of it. But I'll tell you what, a computer can read it in about five seconds and can position you exactly where you would be on that particular piece of legislation. That's crazy. Yeah, so he has this idea of, you know, democracy in the 21st century re- needs to really, this is totally doable and, and totally can be done in a way that... Yes, and I'm sure a Russian company would volunteer to outsource well, it for us. Yeah. <laughs> Might be better than what we have now. <laughs> Could someone get a vendor for this, set up an RFP for uh, setting up the future of uh, American democracy? All right. So we're going to move forward as a society. How? We're going to drop our labels and our affiliations and our, are we going to have a new collective? I don't think humans are capable of that. So a collective of sorts that's a mosaic, if you will. I'm no longer Republican. I'm no longer Democrat. I'm no longer Baptist. I'm no longer atheist. I'm no longer like, so whatever that may be, it could be like, sure, I'm, I'm a mutt, right? Let's be, let's be mutts. Yeah. We cannot, we, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's been our problem, right? Like we want to, it's like, even biblically speaking, like Israel wanted a dogmatic king. Torah says, right? However you want to interpret Torah, whether it was God or Moses or somebody else, these people from the other side looking in going, oh, this isn't your answer, but if this happens, here's how you're going to handle it. Like, it's sort of like this, uh, accommodating God or, you know, a, a if you're you know more into the scholar, scholarly realm, you're like, you know, it's somebody who saw from the other side looking in. It was an editor that said, here's what happened to Israel based on, you know, this God, okay? So then, I mean, how do you, how do you handle... Can, can we handle the paradox, Rob? You love Parker Palmer, and you love paradox. But how does, that, how does that work in societies amongst a, glo- a globalized society? Like, th- this is like freaking... This is not easy. No, it's not. Yeah, no, I mean, it's... Uh, Sorry to put you on the spot, but you like Parker Palmer, and I, I just said Paradox. I, I do. So. What does he call it? He calls it the tragic gap between... Um, eh, I better look this up before I start discussing it. But, I mean, essentially, like, uh, to be sort of unfinished in, you know, a lot of aspects of your life in terms of, like, 
constantly questioning and living in that space is really uncomfortable as we talked about a little bit before and for you know for some people that's yeah i mean that's just uh that's indecision it's weakness it's um it's uh irresponsible if you have a family it's you know positioning yourself in that way like for some people that's that's the position right oh you waffle a lot you waffle a lot you'll hear that right Mm -hmm. if you if you really continuously question um and that's not really you know that's not really the point that uh that i think you know these people who want us to to do our best to live without labels are trying to make um that you you waffle and you're wishy-washy i think it's uh there's a deeper truth there somewhere. Yeah. But it's it's really so, hard. I mean, people have to have their label to put their stake in the ground, you know? And and what the label um, represents. I mean, there, right. there are moments where I can say, you know, while on one hand, Ryan says he's, he's egalitarian and he lives that way. And here are examples. There are some days where Lauren or Ryan, my, so my wife and I, will will, will be... Not so egalitarian, right? Sure. Uh, there, there are days where I'm like, um, you know, capitalism, right? Okay. It works. It's great. And there's other times where I'm like, you know what? Like, it needs some regulation. So there, there are days where I'm like, I, I believe in a God, okay? And there are other days where God is absent, and I don't know if God exists at all, and I'm okay with that. So that is the most difficult place to live in. R- Ryan, are you egalitarian or are you complementarian? Are you a deist or are you an atheist? Are you a capitalist or are you a fucking communist, you son of a bitch? Because <laughs> I have to say that after I say communist because right. people really get angst when you say communist. Totally. So, I mean, like, what? No, again, I, again, I, again yeah, maybe, maybe I'm all those things, and that's okay. I, I feel like what you, humans don't, they just don't know how to move forward in that direction. That's Go, what, yeah. Well, what I was going to say is what you're describing is what it means to be human. I mean, that's totally what you're describing and anybody who says it's not i mean that goes back to the conversation janelle and i were having earlier where i'm like how do you love somebody who fundamentally disagrees with you and i'm talking about it like it's like fucking super easy and there's some days where you want to punch that person in the face absolutely like that that was the point i was i was at least trying to articulate with like i'm not saying that like i have these transcendent conversations they seem like what i should be when i think about it tonight on August, whatever the hell it is today, 2019, that's the way I think about how I should try and be in the world. And I make an attempt to be, but like we're human. And Palmer describes the tragic gap. He says, by the tragic gap, I mean the gap between the hard realities around us, humanity, everything we know about, um, the, the, the pitfalls that we fall into with labels with you know how we treat one another and what we know is possible not because we wish it were so but because we've seen it with our own eyes because a lot of us have experienced and seen um people be able to shed those labels and pull divisions down we've had those experiences and they're amazing we feel more connected to people we feel like there's hope in the world and we've all been in those situations where it seemed like every single person around us had the wall up and there was no hope. Despair was all that was there. And, uh, we had no place to go. Um, 
So, uh, so the, the gap that Palmer is, is calling people to step into is the gap between the hard realities of the divisions, the walls, but what we, and what we know is possible because we've sat in it. We've been in those communities. We've gone to the conference on world religions. Yeah. Parliament, the parliament of world religions. We've seen it in action. Um, and how do we live there? Because to stand on one side or the other with denying the other side is foolish, not particularly helpful. Um, so I don't have any answer to the question, but I mean, that's what inspires me about what Palmer talks about. Yeah. What else in- inspires you moving forward with religion, whatever in religion may be for you, it could be something that's uh, static or it could be something that's dynamic. I think dynamics a little bit more exciting, but sometimes you have to have static. And that religion could be humanism, by the way, based based on our definitions that we didn't really define earlier. But yeah, humanism is a religion. It's messy, people. We should have prefaced the whole th- talk, by the way. But by the way, at the very beginning, this is a religion. <laughs> what I think. I mean, we, you know what? Maybe, it, yeah, Brian, Brian did. If you weren't, if you weren't really listening, he basically said that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, f- for me, I mean, you've heard it. You've heard it from me, Ryan and Janelle both of you and Brian, maybe to some extent you, but I know the two of you have heard it for me because we've had extensive conversation about, but a community to me is, um, really critical, really important. And, uh, there's a lot of complexities with community and, and people belonging, et cetera. Um, yeah, there's a lot of nuance and complexity there, but like brew theology is a, brew theology is a place that gives me hope. Uh, where I come, I talk to people. It's intergenerational community we have. Um, we've got people from, you know, I don't know. I'm trying to think of some of the older folks in our community in their 70s to uh, folks who've come who are college age, some of them for extra credit and whatever religion class they were taking. And then, but, but we also have some regular members who are in their early 20s or whatever the case. And it gives me hope to sit with people. I recognize we're sitting with people who can buy a craft beer and sit in a pub for two hours on a Thursday night. Um, but what also gives me hope is, uh, um, you know, looking at some of the other things that take place in our community. One of our friends runs a vegetable bike in, in Denver that gives me hope. Like, um, so, uh, wherever those places are where, where division is, uh, diminished and, um, we can be human together. Like those are places that are inspirational or, uh, they inspire me to believe like the world will be okay. Um, so those are wherever we reduce division. I think that's good. Any other places of hope for y'all? I mean, within religion moving forward. Well, you hear me say it over and over, but I think interfaith work as a whole, and it has lots of different levels. There's interfaith work that takes place on a global scale. There's the interfaith work that we do on the very local scale, and there's everything in between. And we're blessed to live in Denver where there's a huge interfaith community where different traditions and religions are working together and coming together to make those spaces of community for people. Um, but I think we have to continue to have those conversations and we've got to, to do the hard stuff sometimes of entering into someone else's space that we're not familiar with and welcoming them into our space 
and really hearing them beyond the assumptions that we might have and being willing to have that conversation and, and just walk together in worship. And that may sound, there was a time in my life where that would have sounded very heretical. Um, but as I've seen it practiced and I have made friends in this, in this arena, it is the most beautiful thing to worship together. Um, I, I 110% agree with you. And so a little plug, and this will be after the fact, because by the time this is released, this holiday is over, Rosh Hashanah, which includes Yom Kippur as well, uh, that whole uh, time of reflection and the days of awe, the 10 days of awe that lead up to the Day of Atonement. Um, at the Denver Botanic Gardens, our friends over at Judaism Your Way, Rabbi Brian Feld, they put on an amazing, beautiful, it's very Jewish, Reconstructionist Jewish, by the way, service, but it's very open to all people. Um, so they they keep interfaith in mind because a lot of their people are Jewish people who've married Christians or atheists, or so they're um, the liturgy. Yeah, it's even it's in Hebrew, but then some of it's in English. And so you're watching something from a stage in, in this beautiful area in Denver Botanic Gardens, and uh, it's very um, transcendent, and yet it's also localized. Because you can tell they're actually trying. They're trying to, to build those bridges. And I also love the idea of Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. You know, you dip an apple in honey if you're with your family, uh, which is like the sweetness of a New Year. I'm sorry to get Jewish on you guys. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm soapboxing rabbit trail in here. You go to the, the lakes or the rivers, you get some bread, and it's called tashlik, and you take the piece of bread with your kids and you cast it aside. You cast it aside. And Caroline even remembers this from years ago. And she's like, you know, we go to the water and we throw out the bread and I'm not even Jewish. And I'm like, yeah, it's called Tashlik. So you cast aside all the wrongdoings of that previous year. Like, yeah, everybody wants a sweet new beginning, right? Everybody wants to cast away the stuff that they did that past year. Everybody wants to somehow, the idea of, of those 10 days is to get right with people you've wronged and who've wronged you. That's some tough shit. You know, so atonement's not necessarily about like this God is going to come down and judge you. I mean, like you can you can interpret it that way, but that religion specifically has evolved in you know modern Judaism to say, really Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur uh, is about, hey, we're all connected here. You want to have a better year? Get your shit right with your fellow man, your fellow fellow woman, right? Like, because because you're you're in this thing together. So anyway, that's my plug for Judaism your way. Rabbi Brian Feld, he leads that organization in Denver. It's coming up. I soapbox, my bad. <laughs> it was a good one. Brian, um, I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, maybe your answer is you're not sure what inspires you right now, but I'm interested. You mean along the lines of what gives me hope uh, sure. as we go forward? I think... Um When you look back in history, there's been many times before where the alarm bells were sounding and, and people thought, you know, this was the end, this could be the apocalypse. Um, during the Industrial Revolution, you had Thomas Malthus and the Malthusians, you know, just doing some calculation and saying, well, there's just not going to be enough food for, for human beings uh, to all survive. And, and a lot of technology kind of met that, met that challenge. Um, I don't know what it's going to be, but I, I think collectively human knowledge and scientific discovery will meet some of these challenges. 
that's the scary part, though, is we don't know what they're going to be. You know, we don't know what the greatest minds right now are, are really working on. Someday they'll write books and, and have movies 40 or 50 years from now and say, look at what these people were working on in 2018, 2019 um, that helped meet the, the need for, that got rid of the need for oil. Right or that helped meet the the human need as automation was taking over, but that's what's so scary is we don't we don't know what that is right we don't we don't see that future we can only look back and say based on what we know we're pretty screwed right now. <laughs> I mean if we stay within this kind of capitalist paradigm, you're just going to have a massive amount of unemployed people. That's scary and climate and climate. Uh, there's no question about that right. I mean we already have climate refugees. And so I don't know what's going to take us forward, but I'm, uh, I'm interested to, to see what that is. I, I can tell you what it's not going to be. It's not going to be a politician, right? I mean, I don't think anybody, as much as there are politicians that, I, okay, I'd prefer this person to be president or, or congressman or senator, uh, that's not where these, these great discoveries are, are, are going to come from. But they can set a table, for more scientific research, for creating a, a general sense of hope within uh, the world or within our community at large. Um, That's fair. All right. We would love to hear your thoughts, too. Uh, you can man, you can talk about that on the Brew Theology Facebook page, or you can email yeah. us. Online is always good if you do it in a polite way. So if you like this episode, <laughs> share it on the line. Go to iTunes, rate or review it. That's how people know where we're at, because iTunes is the mothership, even though we're hosted by Podbean. Give Podbean some love as well. And go to the, all the pages we've got, the channels, Brew Theology, Brew underscore Theology on Twitter, and we will talk to you guys soon. Cheers. 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 Cheers.